Today's episode of Azure Lunch is sponsored by the Microsoft New Zealand Partner Hub. If you are building software or providing services related to Microsoft products, then you should check out the Partner Hub for training, advice, and a heap of resources, including the Partner Practice Playbooks at aka.ms slash nzpartnerhub. Kia ora koutou, I'm Daniel Larson, Technical Evangelist at Microsoft, and I'm joined by our very first special guest. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Ben Chashran. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Ben works at Timely, who make amazing software for Salon and the spa industry for point of sale and, and bookings and things like that. Ben, tell me a little bit about your role at, at Timely. Yeah, so at Timely, I'm a development lead, a development manager. So I have some staff report to me, but I work on the platform development team, otherwise known as PlatDev. So I get to do a bit of coding and infrastructure. So that's really interesting. How would you distinguish the difference between you know the platform, what the platform team do, and, and what the product team do? I guess traditionally the platform team, you know, the long ago they'd be the ones say looking after servers and keeping them up and patched and so on. But nowadays with the trend in in a cloud where everything's more accessible and everything revolves more around code, there's really this merging, I guess, of development and and platform and you know having someone who, you know like myself who can say help write code or make CI CD pipelines to automate things like ARM templates. Um, yeah, that's that's where it's sort of, sort of all coming together. So we're all sharing our skills and abilities. And I, I think you have to be a little bit crazy to do platform dev. Would you agree? <laughs> it's a very special type of person, but we're special in a good way. <laughs> it's a very good way of putting it. Uh, that's awesome. And look, Ben, how do you find time to do all of the amazing things you're doing in the community? And, and you know, I just wanted to thank you personally for that. I mean, you've got Code Club. You've, you know, you did a uh, Azure Lunchtime meetup. Uh, must be almost two months ago up here in Auckland for us. And, uh, you know, I know you've done another one since then. You've got another one coming up. And then, of course, you've got Code Club, which is very special. Tell me a little bit about, about Code Club and what you're doing there. Yeah, so Code Club, um, just quickly, many years ago, my daughter came home in tears saying, that I want to join the coding club, but I'm afraid of being bullied. And when I asked her more information, she wasn't worried about being bullied by the boys. It was her friends, her girlfriends. So I went to the school and I said, all right, what's going on? Tell me about this club. And I said, well, hold on, why don't I run this? And since then, I've been using the Code Club resources. Code Club is a is part of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. So they provide all these predefined materials. And I just go in and I run it. And most of the time, it's just telling the kids, hey, here's the project name. They run off and have fun, and the other half of the time, they tell me about all their awesome projects they worked on over the weekends. Wow. Super cool, and uh, really good to see that. And if you would like to see what Ben is doing with Code Club, just, just look him up on, on Twitter, and of course, we've got a, we'll have put links on the show notes as well. All right, so we've got lots to talk about today. Um, so you, uh, almost two months ago, you did a, talk, a great talk for us at the Azure Lunchtime Meetup. It was about functions, and you've been playing around with functions a bit. Your talk was about um, was called Functions, Tacos, and Wolves, though. Where did that come from? <laughs> yes, it is a rather trippy combination. Um, the wolves is sort of a recurring theme in some of my blog posts and some of my talks. Um, the tacos is, I was struggling to, I did, I, mean, I did my first Azure Functions talk, and then my manager said, hey, Ben, why don't you give the same talk internally? But the problem is I had a lot of non-technical people show up. So I was struggling to explain why I'm excited. So I struck on the analogy of a taco truck to explain to them serverless. Nice. I really like that. And so for you know, for our, I guess, our less technical audience, 
Well, tell us about serverless. I mean, what does that actually mean? Where, are there no servers? You know, where, where does this code run? Why and why do serverless at all? Yeah, so I guess a, a long time ago, like I think back when I started my career, you know, the, the basic process would be, you know, I would go and I would beg for a server. Please, I need somewhere to host my infrastructure. Um, that would involve a business case. That would take time. Um, eventually, if I got through all the bureaucracy and all the hassle and waiting for it to physically arrive, then the IT people would take it and configure it. And, you know, all these things would take time. And but when then when the cloud came about, you know, with a few clicks of a button, I could do this. But it was still a server and somebody to maintain it. Now, if we step back and think about it from my point of view as a dev, I just want somewhere where my code will run. I don't want to have to worry about patching. I don't want to have to worry about scaling. I don't want to have to worry about any gory details. I don't care if it's Linux or Windows underneath the hood. I just have this little piece of code and I want it to run. And serverless has been you know, the closest thing to enable me to do that. I upload my code and it works and it scales and it's cheap. It's all these things that are just awesome. And mm -hmm. you know, in some cases I've worked on projects where I just knew that it was going to cost me nothing. So I just charged ahead and did it. I didn't have to go through you know, a big approval process. Yeah, that's really cool. But I mean, doesn't that just tie you into you know, a cloud provider and, and using their serverless offering? So, um, the big benefit of the serverless model is that it's, it's the way you write them. You're writing these small little pieces of code. So in the past, we'd write, say, a big, giant, chunky API. Now we're worried about writing little endpoints. And these little endpoints, in theory, yes, you are writing it against the framework, which is specific to the provider. But it is still relatively easy to move that and put it somewhere else. But um, with Azure in particular, what's really exciting is that with functions, they have what's called function version 2, which is an open source framework, which means that if, for example, I'm not happy with hosting it in Azure, I can actually take it and host it whatever I want in a container, in a Kubernetes cluster, and that could be run, you know, say in, in AWS. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I love about the functions framework. I mean, you know, it is completely open source. You know, we've got contributors from Microsoft and also from the community as well. That's, that's you know, as you said, has been introduced in V2. What are, what are other differences between V2 and V1? So I guess version one is was primarily written for .NET Framework. Um, that was obviously Microsoft's first um, service attempt. Um, and that works great. But version two, the big thing is that it's all based on .NET Core. So the, one of the big differences is that you have, you know, um, it's open source and it's multi-platform. So once again, you can host it now within the Microsoft service, or you can host it wherever you want. Um, which is really, really powerful. Um, there are a host of other improvements, and we get all the goodness that comes with .NET Core, and especially all the performance-related changes. But I guess version 2 has gone GA recently, and that's where Microsoft now is pouring all their future development efforts in. So lots, lots of new fancy stuff is coming in that space. Drill into that that multi-platform there. What what do you mean? Are we talking about .NET code that, you know, as a traditional .NET developer, I used to run uh, yeah. only on Windows? I mean, where does it run now? Yeah. So with um, with the original functions, it was all it was primarily around dot, .NET. But what was really fun about it is that you did have the option to write functions in other languages. So you could use you know your JavaScript, your um, so Node. Um, you could you could write it in Java or Python and other languages. And same thing with this new framework. It's once again, it's sort of a, a language agnostic framework that allows us to use all these other languages. So, for example, PowerShell 
is is coming. Um, Java is now a first class language, so it doesn't really matter, I guess, what language you want to use to develop your functions. Yeah, cool. And it's, Sorry to interrupt. As you know, I'm a, I'm a massive .NET Core fan, and yeah. the beauty of .NET Core, I think, is is it you really can run on on any platform on on you know any hosting provider, uh, and you know Functions is really set up to support that, right? Yeah. Good stuff. Okay, so we're out of GA. Is that right? Yes, we went out of GA um, around the time of the uh, Build conference. Yeah. So that's when they announced that we finally went GA with version two. So which is really exciting because they've. When they mentioned that, they also said, "Hey, we have some other cool stuff that is coming." So I'm primarily a you know .NET C# Sharp dev. Um, I prefer to use that for my functions most of the time. Hmm. But one of the things they announced, for example, is that the proper dependency injection is coming <laughs> with version two for .NET. So I'm super pumped about that. Hooray! That's uh, that's really good. And we can we can take these functions and run them on on Kubernetes. I heard that's that's heading towards that open FAS framework. Um, yeah, that's right. I, I, there is, I guess, there's, all the different cloud providers are all creating their own functions offerings. But we're also there is a movement to try to create more of an open standard for functions, which I suspect will take off. But yes, it's. I, I guess with Microsoft making their framework open source, yeah, you will be able to run it wherever you want, however you want. You just write it against the framework, and it's then it, it becomes more about just you're writing code against the framework versus you know against some specific platform. You've nailed it. So that, that's what I've been talking to as well. You know, it's what .NET is becoming the framework, which I just think is so cool. You know, we can say, you know, because I, I work with platform teams and as a platform team, we can say to our product teams, hey, if you target .NET, you're cool. You know, we're good. We can we can host it anywhere we want. We can, you know, we can chop and change. And we've got, we got so many options, even in, in terms of serverless and, and uh, PaaS and even good old fashioned IaaS if we need to. That's mm, right. Super cool. So it sounds like you've been doing some really neat stuff with that. Have you, have you got a story you can tell us from work? I mean, how have you been using this, you know, as part of your day job? Yeah, so I guess um, my first instance of using it at work, it was uh, we had a this little tool that um, told us what code we had deployed to each of our test environments. So we have around five test environments, and in each test environment, we have five different apps, so 25 things where we had to know what commit got pushed where, by who, so one day that sort of thought pops in my mind, I think, hey, wait a second, I can build something. And it's so cheap that it's effectively free. I'm just going to go ahead and build it. <laughs> so I built this little tool that tells us what's in each environment. But what's really neat about it is that it's hooked up into our Azure DevOps instance. So whenever we do a deploy, it goes, hey, I just deployed you know, this commit to this uh, site. But we, we also used, um, we also wrote a Slack bot so that you know, my team can just say, hey, what's in test three in it in Slack? And it just tells them. But it's all powered by function. And it, the storage is all table storage. So since it's internal, low amount of traffic, and table storage is so cheap, the whole thing was free. Outstanding. <laughs> Outstanding. That's such a good story. So <clears throat> as you know, I follow you on Twitter. You've been really busy with these blog posts. And you've been talking about something really interesting, these Cloudflare uh, workers and um, and the additional functionality that's coming into those those Cloudflare um, pop nodes or edge nodes. First of all, just give us a quick summary. What is what is Cloud, Cloudflare and how does it work? Yeah, so Cloudflare is a company in San Francisco. They, um, I guess, started out providing DNS and DDoS protection. But they've since expanded quite a bit to provide more and more functionality. So now they've recently come out, uh, a little while ago, they came out with their workers functionality. So imagine a CDN. They have something like 154 locations all over the world, including one in Auckland. But when we, in say, 
with my functions that I create that I say, I need, I need that set up in one region, one location. Whereas with a worker, it's a little tiny bit of serverless code and it can work in any one of their locations. So a, a use case for that could be something as simple as I want to automatically append headers to it. I want to add a header or I want to disable certain requests or in my case, now I'm pushing this, you know, trying to do more out of it because they've recently rolled out their um, uh, feature called uh, KV. It's cloud uh, key value pairs. So mm. the point is I have this serverless compute that sits on the edge that hits every request that, as it comes in, but I also have this storage that sits on the edge. So for example, if I want to build an app and I, my closest data center is Australia, if someone comes from the UK, they have to come all the way down here. And even if I put my function Mm. Over in London, the database is still in Sydney, mm. which is not great for latency. But imagine if I could handle as much of that as possible on the edge, really close to the user. So with KV, um, it's key value storage. So you can think of it like Redis or like table storage. So I can point is I have the serverless compute, which is the worker, and I have the storage, which is KV storage. So I can handle a lot of my requests and a lot of work on the edge. So a simple example, let's say you have an API, you have keys. Every user has a, has a key. Yeah. As the request comes in, I can say, what is the key you passed me in the header? Oh, I can look at key value and say, yes, that's there. But wait a second, it expired last week. Sorry, I'm going to stop this request right here. It's not even going to make its way to my functions in Australia. Mm, that's fascinating. So now we've got state in the workers, a little bit of state. Mm. How, how do you keep that in sync? Uh, that's the beauty of their offering. It's sort of like serverless where it's auto-magical. <laughs> you upload... Yeah. You upload the information once and it sort of gets distributed magically everywhere. But it also works on a traffic basis where if it's data that's very, very infrequently read, less than once, one time per second, it stores it centrally. But once you get to one second or more than one hit per second, that's where they store it on the edge. Yeah, okay. So, and I guess, you know, we just have to take it for granted that that's eventually consistent. Yes, exactly. And that is the, the big downside. It's designed for reads mm. primarily. It's not good for writes. Um, yeah. So it's, it's good for static data totally. or data that changes very infrequently. Still amazing though. But uh, So tell me about the language you're using for writing those workers. What what, what options have we got? Um, it's, pri it's primarily JavaScript. So oh, cool. For ages, I was not a fan of JavaScript. But nowadays, it's, oh, come on. it's quite, quite a nice language. I love <laughs> but, JavaScript. Um, the, um, oh, I love the new do, modern JavaScript. Do you know why we don't like JavaScript? It's for all those years in the, in the 2000s when we were doing cross-browser compatibility. And, uh, you, know, and it, you know, you just learn to hate JavaScript when you're doing that sort of work. And, and once all that got fixed, now JavaScript's beautiful, right? No JS. Oh, it Fantastic. So, yeah, the, you effectively have all the goodness of Node.js with workers. Node.js. So, you're, sorry to interrupt. You're, you're pushing NPM packages. You've got all you that can, as well. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess the, when you do serverless, you have to keep in mind that you know you have code that's not always running and it can get spun up. So the more dependencies you have, the bigger the code, the longer it takes to load. So you want to minimize your dependencies. Yeah. So by default, I try to write things that are just plain pure JavaScript. Um, but what's really fun and interesting about the Cloudflare is that they're also going. They also offer a WASM, a WebAssembly. I can't believe that. So that's just amazing. So that means that's like so we cool. could have like a .NET or Rust or C++ module yeah. that runs there. It could also run on the website and it can also run there on the edge. 
let's let's pause a little bit and talk about WASM. So that's the WebAssembly. Um, this is a set of APIs that have been built into um, into all browsers now. This is a, a web standard to run. Really, I mean, if you know Assembler, good old fashioned Assembler, you know, a, a version of that in the browser which is completely cross-browser compatible. So it means we're starting to see compilers now from uh, C, C++, um, .NET, um, Go and Rust that you mentioned. You know, pretty much every language down to WebAssembly, and you can run those in the workers. And of course, you know, your mind just explodes, doesn't it, with with the possibilities of what you can do then. Oh, indeed. And I guess it's just amazing because it goes back to that. I can write my code once in whatever language I know, and I can deploy it, and I'll have all the performance benefits as if I wrote it in some other language like C++. Yeah. Outstanding. That's uh, that's very very cool. All right, let's switch tack a bit because you and I, we've you know we've had a few chats, and I know we're both very passionate about um, about patterns and practices. Um, let's talk a bit about about cloud architecture and, and things like that. Tell me about what's been interesting you in terms of you know cloud architecture, distributed computing. What, what sort of things have you been looking at? Well, Microsoft has this fantastic ebook called Cloud Application Architecture Guide. Awesome ebook. I love it so much that I actually went to a printer and got all I think, 400 pages of it printed off. <laughs> that's great. Good bedtime reading, that one, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's actually, that's precisely what it was for. Because my wife's reading some book, and there's me with my my architecture guide in bed. Yeah, that's an outstanding book. So I will um, put it definitely put a link to that on the show notes as well. You know, that's your, I guess, the equivalent of um, you know Fowler's Patterns of Enterprise Architecture, which is you know another great book to read at bedtime but but really these are patterns that are that are higher level what what are a couple of that have taken your taken your fancy well the primary one for me is cqrs um, nice command query uh, responsibility segregation um it's a fancy name but effectively it means this you treat your reads separately from your writes so for example i have a database um i don't i want to spare the database as much as i can because relative to all my cloud um, resources, that's the most expensive. Yeah. And it doesn't scale as nicely, as quickly, as easily as, say, my functions. Nice. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, all my writes, sweet, no problem, that can go to my data, but my reads come from somewhere else. So when I do my write, I write my da data to my database, but I also write it to this cheap store, which in my case is table storage, because it's fast and right. it's cheap. Right. Okay, so let's drill into that a little bit more. So what we're saying is, let's not use SQL Server as the hammer. I mean, SQL Server is wonderful, and it's really good when you need those those guaranteed rights, those those transactions and things like that. So on, on the on the command side of that CQRS stack, uh, we're sending those rights directly to the database. But when you read them, you're reading them from, I guess, a store that's eventually consistent. What what's the pattern you would you would use for that? Some um, materialized view, right? Yeah, that's right. It is a materialized view. So what what we're trying to do with the CQRS is that, um, you know, SQL is great for returning data in many different ways, but with the CQRS pattern, to make it really fast and efficient, I'm trying to store the precise view of data. So if I have like a get endpoint that says, get me my books, and it, that's exactly what I'm storing in this read, um, read store. Hmm. So that way I don't have to do any parsing or joining. It's just grab the data straight out return it that's it mm, very cool and table storage have you looked at the table storage api in cosmos yes i have so the um the fun thing was starting with with plain table storage is that it's pretty much it actually wait a second is it pretty much the same api as going to cosmos yeah yeah, uh, yeah sorry it is, it is nowadays yes that's right yeah so, that's right. so 
if I wanted more performance, I could then just change my under, underlying data structures, or sorry, my underlying data store to Cosmos and I don't have to change my code. Yeah, I mean, it's not just performance because table storage is already incredibly performant as long as you know the exact partition ID and key, <laughs> really yeah, key that right. you're querying for. But the advantages I see in using the table API on, on Cosmos is you've got all sorts of other features under the hood, like you know additional indexes um, and also just being a multi-model database, you can query it in different ways. So some really cool things coming out of that Cosmos team as well. Awesome. Well, Ben, this has just been a really good talk. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. We've gone over lots of uh, lots of concepts really quickly. What's your um, what's your Twitter handle again? It's BCNZER. That's right. And so, yeah, just really encourage you to follow Ben on Twitter. Uh, and that's got, of course, posts, links to all his posts and, and what he's doing in the community. Ben, just really want to thank you and just acknowledge you as our very first uh, special guest on Azure Lunch, and we're you know we're big fans of, of what you do, um, and also our first Skype call. So apologies um, for not getting you on soon. As you know, we've had a couple of cracks at this. Who knew that recording off Skype <laughs> was so hard? But um, I've finally nailed it. I'm going to take a photo. I'm going to take a selfie in a minute of um, of all the gear. Uh, you know, two laptops and all sorts of other things to get this to work. But this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for joining us and best of luck with your next talk. I know you've got one in Wellington, another one in Auckland soon. And keep up the great work. Cheers, thank you. Today's episode of Azure Lunch was sponsored by the Microsoft New Zealand Partner Hub. If you're building software or providing services related to Microsoft products, then you should check out the Partner Hub for training, advice, and a heap of resources, including the Partner Practice Playbooks. And you can find them online at aka.ms slash nzpartnerhub. Thank <laughs> you.